It has been two years and 26 days since I last treated a patient. Today we're going to start the mini-series on the nervous system and pain. I'm going to go over the nervous system anatomy and physiology specifically, but I'm gearing this episode towards non-medical providers. I'm sure those of you who are medical providers don't need a lesson on anatomy and physiology at the nervous system, but I am hoping that you can draw from how I teach it to patients to potentially give you some extra tools on how to communicate this material to your own patients. Before I dive in on the anatomy and physiology, I want to tell a story from when I was in PT school. Where I went, we had a relatively unique experience, or at least at the time unique, one of, of the PT students and the medical students taking their anatomy and the neuroscience courses together. To those of you who went to medical school, I actually mean anatomy and neuroscience courses. I know many medical schools try to cram the neuroscience stuff into an add-on on the anatomy course. We had a whole semester of it. It was overwhelmingly the hardest, but also my favorite class of the entire program. Every topic we covered was taught by an expert in that area, and expectations of retaining the information they taught was high. It's from one of those experts that I got a real perspective on what we know versus what we think we know in the human body. This person was an expert on learning, memory, and attention. My first interaction with him was a story about understanding the brain. He said, you've probably heard the colloquialism that we use 10% of our brain. That's ridiculous. We use 100% of our brain. What I think people meant by that statement was that we understand about 10% of the brain. Of course, that statement has also been used for 20 years now. Medical science has advanced greatly over the last couple of decades through new and better technologies and higher quality research. We have a way better grasp on the brain now than we did 20 years ago. Now we're at about 14% understanding. Obviously, he was telling a joke, but what really stood out to me was that in front of me was an expert on understanding, saying that we don't understand very much. This joke never left me. It served as a reminder to never think you know anything at all. Try as you might, you're going to be wrong. But what's crucial is to try to learn as much as you can and to do as little harm as possible in your lack of understanding. So given that story, I want to preface something to listeners who know this material already. Everything I say in this episode today might result in someone tomorrow, possibly in a month, probably in a year, and definitely in a hundred years listening to me and saying, this guy is an idiot. He has no idea what he's talking about. I'm okay with that. I just found that the following has been helpful for patients in understanding what's going on with their own body enough to help improve their pain and function. If you disagree with something I say and want to talk to me about it, that's fine. All I ask is, don't be a dick. Know that I've never found these lessons to lead a patient astray or cause them harm, even if I'm wrong about something. Disclaimer over. Let's start by using an analogy to describe the nervous system. If we were to smash the power company and the telephone company together in one location, that would be your brain. To the younger listeners, before mobile phones, we used to have phones attached to the wall by wires, and we talked to each other through those wires. There was no mobile about those phones, and we often tangled ourselves in the cords when we were teenagers talking to our crushes for hours late into the night. So when I say telephone company, I don't mean your mobile service provider. I mean the company that managed all those wires we talked through. Your spinal cord would be like a central router of the signals that come from your brain to your body and from your body to your brain. You could think of houses as the organs, muscles, skin, circulatory system, etc. that receive or send messages through the power lines and telephone wires. Your body is kind of like a small city in that regard. Without power coming to your house, your appliances are dead. Similarly, 
without signals coming from the brain and spinal cord to your muscle, the muscles don't do anything. If you don't send a message through a telephone call, the receiver has no idea what's going on with you. Again, similarly, the brain needs information coming from the body to know what's going on down there. Now this loose analogy breaks down pretty quickly if I were to go into more detail, but I'm hoping at least it at least gives you a bird's eye view on the nervous system. There are two primary components to the nervous system, the central and the peripheral systems. Your brain and spinal cord are part of the central, and all the nerves going into your body from the brain and spinal cord are the peripheral. I'm going to avoid talking much more about the brain and organs in relation to the nervous system for now. We're going to focus on the peripheral nerves that are for movement and sensation. There's really cool information out there on the nervous, central nervous system and organ controlling nerves, but that's not part of today's discussion. A peripheral nerve could easily be thought of as a power line. It's an, it has an insulating outer layer surrounding one or more wires called the myelin sheath. The sheath's primary function is to protect the nerves and to make electrical signals traveling in the nerves more efficient. There's a small difference between the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous systems regarding that sheath, though. In the central nervous system, the sheath has gaps, while in the peripheral nervous system, it's continuous. There are trade-offs to both options. The gaps in the sheath really speed up signal transmission, and that's, that's important for the brain. Well, the peripheral nervous system with its continuous sheath has a much slower transmission rate. The positive of the continuous sheath is that the nerve is more protected, and it also gives a channel for a nerve to regrow. Now, a fair amount of people will say, I thought nerves couldn't regrow. This is mostly true. There's a lot of limiting factors to nerve regrowth, but the important aspect regarding gapped versus continuous sheath is that the sheath acts as a guide for the nerve to grow through. If you were to cut a nerve in the brain at the gap in the myelin sheath, the nerve is left with a chasm it can't jump across to the next sheath. In the periphery, the nerve can just keep growing down the sheath where its normal end to where its normal endpoint would be. This type of injury is important. The type of injury is important, of course. If you crush a nerve or pinch a nerve really hard, the nerve fiber can die, quote unquote, at the spot of injury. But if the sheath isn't severed, the nerve can, nerve can just regrow down that sheath. It takes a very long time to regrow, and it's variable from person to person. I frequently had to tell patients that if they're going to get sensation back, they're looking at a one to three year wait just to find out if it'll return. Here's another important part of the nervous system I haven't discussed yet. Nerves have their own blood supply from arteries and veins, as well as a lymphatic drainage system. I want to explain a little bit about the circulatory and lymphatic systems for a minute. It'll become important when I talk about nerve anatomy later. I'll start with the circulatory system. It's effectively the heart, lungs, arteries, and veins. The heart pumps oxygenated blood from the lungs into the arteries, then the arteries carry the blood out into the body after which the veins bring the deoxygenated blood back to the lungs from the body to be reoxygenated. You'll often see pictures of the circulatory system where the arteries are red and the veins are blue in a cartoon body. The reason the arteries are depicted as red is because your blood cells have iron in them, which is the binding location for oxygen from your lungs. Oxygen bound to iron is called iron oxide, or as most people know it, rust, hence the red color. Veins, on the other hand, carry blood back to the lungs after oxygen is released from the blood cells to your tissues. You can even see veins in some people, and they're a blue tinge. That's representative of the rusty color being diminished because there's less oxygen bound up in the blood cells in your veins. Another important thing to know about our circulatory system is how blood moves around. 
Many, if not all of you, have had your blood pressure taken at some point in time. This is a measurement of your artery blood pressure, and that's a reflection of how hard your heart is working. The veins, on the other hand, don't really have a lot of pressure. The reason there's a big difference between the arteries and the veins is that blood from the arteries is being pushed into smaller and smaller tunnels, eventually reaching tiny tubes called capillaries. The transition from capillary to vein is blood moving from tiny tubes into larger and larger tubes, so the pressure's lost. It's kind of like when you put your thumb on the end of a running hose. A smaller hole for the water to move through increases the pressure, while you just widen the hole by removing your thumb, and you'll see the pressure is reduced. We generally say that a target blood pressure for people is 120 over 80. Uh, as an aside, you may have also heard 115 over 75. Um, many medical practitioners are starting to say that now based on current research saying that it's a healthier target number. Anyway, once blood reaches the vein at 120, that 120 number in the artery pressure can drop to 25 or lower. While you may not have a reference for the unit of measurement blood pressure is measured in, it's pretty easy to tell that 120 down to 25 is a significant drop. What this means is the blood in your veins needs some help getting back to the heart and lungs. Enter the muscles. When you move around, your muscles are contracting and relaxing, and that contract-relax is kind of like the heart. So your muscles become the heart of the veins. That's why sitting for long periods of time over years is a contributing factor to varicose veins. The blood just pools and stagnates, and over time, the walls of the veins start to distend and become really big, and therefore more visible, and that's varicose veins. Now let's move along to the lymphatic system. I know that this system is generally more unfamiliar to non-medical professionals, so I'll try to keep it simple. Running nearby your arteries and veins are another set of vessels conveniently named lymphatic vessels. There's a lot of fluid in the body that isn't contained inside the arteries and veins. One example you've probably experienced would be swelling after an injury. The lymphatic system's job is to pull the fluid buildup that is swelling into its vessels and carry it to specialized structures called lymph nodes. These lymph nodes have immune cells to fight diseases that might be floating around inside that fluid. From there, the excess fluid is taken to another specialized structure that effectively recycles the fluid back into the body. Simply put, the lymphatic system is to reduce swelling and fight disease. This is a gross oversimplification, but it suits the purposes for today's discussion. Now that we've covered the circulatory and lymphatic systems, let's return to nerves. While we often convey nerves as just things that shoot electricity around, what's more accurate is that there are chemicals interacting and moving around that generate that electricity. I'm going to switch from my previous analogy of power lines to a new one. Instead of a power line, we're going to now think of the nerve as a highway passing through an underground tunnel. The on-ramps would be similar to the circulatory system, bringing the nerve supplies it needs, like oxygen and food, or in other words, cars coming into the tunnel. All living cells produce waste, which is true of the nervous system too. So the off-ramps would be the lymphatic system carrying away excess fluid and waste products that the nerves create. In this analogy, the waste is also cars. I'm hoping that isn't confusing to label both food and waste as cars. I doubt any of you would call what you eat and what you excrete the same thing. In this example, the cars are just to represent that the nerve is eating something and then something is excreted that needs to go away. Anyway, when traffic is flowing, everyone is happy. But what if we have a 15-car pileup accident right in the middle of the tunnel? This would be representative of an injured nerve. The same thing that happens to your ankle when you sprain it happens to a nerve too. Inflammation, pain, and swelling all occur when it's injured. 
The 15-car pileup is trauma and associated pain. More cars trying to come in represents the swelling in an irritated nerve. If we really want to lean into this analogy, you could just call the local pain of the car accident like the traumatic incident that caused the injury. The really pissed off people stuck behind the accident would be the inflammatory pain that comes after the traumatic injury. Where we have a difference between the ankle injury and the nerve injury is that nerves are really sensitive. Their job, predominantly, is to send the brain information about the injured ankle. But if they themselves are the, are the injured party, they don't just send the information to the brain, they scream bloody murder about it. This is where you can often make a distinction between a sprained ankle pain and somebody crumpled on the floor unable to move pain. The traffic jam can't be resolved from behind the accident because more traffic keeps trying to enter the tunnel. You have to clear the block from the front, meaning a tow truck has to come from the front where the road is clear and remove the destroyed cars one by one. We're going to go back to the veins in your body for a second. I've already said that your muscles act as a heart for your veins, but nerves don't have muscles in them. In addition, nerves are really sensitive. Muscles are big, dumb, and violent. A sensitive nerve doesn't want a muscle beating it up just to move fluid around. We have to approach the pumping of fluid in a different way. A nerve is kind of like a tube if we reference the myelin sheath again. What happens if you pull on a tube? Those of you who have played with the children's toy called a finger cuff will know. If you put your fingers in each side of the finger cuff, then try to pull them back out, the finger cuff narrows, trapping your fingers. It's this action we can use to clear out the tra tra traffic accident in the nerve. Very small, and much more importantly, gentle, pulls on a nerve create a squeeze that gradually over time can pump out the stagnant swelling and inflammation. If you pull too hard on a sensitive nerve, you just piss it off even more, which is tantamount to slamming 10 more cars into the accident. Small little movements are effectively acting as that tow truck coming in the front of the traffic jam and pulling out cars slowly over time. This analogy is using a catastrophe of a 15-car pileup, but the same holds true if there's just a small traffic jam. The point is that repeated movement is necessary to keep nerves healthy, or in analogy terms, keeping the traffic flowing. This is your crash course on nerve anatomy and physiology regarding pain. In the next episode, we're going to go into the into functions of the peripheral nervous system. We're going to discuss sensations, reflexes, and more specifically what pain is and how the system responds to it. Fair warning, it's going to get trippy. A big portion of the episode will be on how little control you have over your own body, and the big one, how your perception of what is real is actually very frequently wrong. <laughs>